We're also going to be talking about uh, Clyde and a little bit of uh, religious symbology. And by religious symbology and a little bit, I mean so much that it would make Charles Dickens blush, probably. Yeah, this is going to make Tolstoy jealous. (laughs) (laughs) All right, welcome to the Codex Cantina. I am Una. And I am Impaired Crypto. (laughs) long story for another video (laughs) for definitely another video (laughs) all right for the scope of this video we are going to be doing basically quotes and analysis and that's it we're skipping the plot because now you guys have officially been liberated you're able to read the timeline in the back of the book hopefully those timelines have been helpful for you on this journey now this quote is going to be very important because this actually just basically kicks off our first analysis point but it's from Hyatt Howe Wagner who says One meaning of Absalom, then, is that when the Old South was faced with a choice it could not avoid, it chose to destroy itself rather than admit brotherhood across racist lines. Yeah, I feel like that encapsulates a lot of the entire book, right? It really does. The piece of it of the Old South, I mean, leaving out all the other things that we've talked about. Just now we're finally getting to kind of the final parts. We have no more spoilers finally, which is good. Now let's kind of wrap up our Old South allegory here with the South destroying itself. We see Henry accepting the incest, but rejecting the 116th black blood in Charles Bond's body. What are your thoughts on that, Crypto? I think it's super significant that that's something that's so inbred. <laughs> see what I did there? Oh, yeah. Uh, he would accept incest, but not cross racial lines. And that's how important race was to Southern culture at this time period. Whereas incest, meh, but race, ooh, big no no. I really think this is just a great allegory for the South. Faulkner really did not pull any punches for this, the way that he's coming right out. And basically, in the opening chapters, they even talk directly about breeding the slaves, like as if they were stock. Then you find out one of the slaves was his daughter of the two. And now we get finally to the last part where Southerners would rather reject anyone who's 116th black than have anything negative to say about about incest. That's that's a very powerful statement, I feel like, the way he structured this. And I think it shows how ingrained in the society it was and that this is not going to be an easy, quick change overnight. And we'll have the long-term ramifications moving forward into Reconstruction. So with Bond, now let's look at it from Charles Bond's perspective instead of from Henry's perspective. He flipped this design on its head, in a sense, and recreated it. Because we see and kind of re-experience how Sutpin left him as a small child because he was black. And that wouldn't allow him to complete his design to never have a door shut on them, to never be turned down, to be the man in charge. Yeah. Charles Bond has a child and does the exact same thing to that child that Sutpin did to him. And not only that, Sutpin, when he turned around on Charles, was the same thing that happened to him, in a sense, where... He was rejected by this boy from entering from the front and pushes him away and experienced those feelings of inferiority. He then puts those feelings of inferiority directly onto Charles. Not just like, hey, I I don't want you to go through rough times. He directly puts those on him in the same way they were put on him as a child. We see a very circular story here happening of Sutpin lineage of doing whatever you want from an ambition standpoint and just 
committing the same sins over and over again of just destroying morality and destroying um, human rights, if you will. This is a great way where Faulkner is using that cycle over and over again to enforce his allegory of the South, that they're perpetuating their own sins by allowing slavery to continue to exist. And this family is allowing themselves to waller in misery, basically, even though they think they may be happy because of what they've obtained financially, they aren't doing better. And each generation is not improving upon itself. And it's because they're still, they're still not accepting of these different races. I have a quote here for you that I feel like really encapsulates this. So kind of like I put this as the sins of the father quote. And now that the old man was bankrupt with the incompetence of age, who should do the paying if not his sons, his get? Because wasn't it done that way in the old days? The old Abraham full of years and weak and incapable, now a further harm, caught at last. And the captains and the collector saying, old man, we don't want you. And Abraham would say, praise the Lord. I have raised about me sons to bear the burdens of mine, iniquities and persecutions. So there you have the father kind of admitting to passing down the sins to his generation that we've talked about ad nauseum. But as wonderful as the story is, it is depressing. Too. Yeah, and I think that comes back to that it is a tragedy and that what is going to be breaking the cycle is sometimes has to come from an outside source, and that's going to be the North coming into the South, invading them and changing their ways. That's going to have to be something outside coming in and changing, and I think that can be a lot to come back to Wash, right? He kind of represents the outside of the family coming in and changing or forcing change upon them. In terms of who he does favor, even though Charles Bond had bad things happen to him in terms of never getting... Um, recognition from his father. So what initially thought was, you know, in the earlier chapters was some like kind of homosexual love between Charles and Henry. We see the further motivations here that he just wanted to be recognized by his father. And the only way he's going to be recognized is is what he thought was incest injection into the family, but was actually the, the racial discrimination. I thought that a lot of the way I think Clyde and Charles Bond were written was you, I feel I did, I associated more with them to have more positive attributes than I did for Henry or Sutpen or, or any of the white people that, that they're, you're, you're slightly more sympathetic for the half-black characters in this piece than you are for the white characters in this piece. Yeah, I would agree. I think that you're supposed to feel that way. You're supposed to be a little empathetic with them coming from our standpoint now looking, looking back into the past. I think it was trying to expose something, most definitely. Uh, I think that Faulkner does uh, a great job of, of writing, uh, you know, family drama and using the race here, like we've said, with, with Charles and Clyde and everything. Absolutely. And let's jump into kind of the last chapter or two here with uh, Quentin going into the haunted house, the, the haunted atmosphere and horrific past that the South has created, if you will. You'll notice that when they got there, Rose is like, where's your gun? And the gun typically in literature represents manhood, right? And Quentin, of course, doesn't have it. And Quentin hasn't truly faced, I feel like, the past at this point in time. This is, this is him recognizing at the end with, I don't hate the South. I don't hate the South. He's finally forced to face 
a lot of what the past has been from a generation removed perspective, right? Oh, definitely. And I think that Quentin finally recognizes that he may not be any better than anybody else in this story, which is a hard pill for him to swallow. And he's given a hatchet. And we've seen, like, so for example, in the short story Red Leaves, a hatchet is represent meaning to cut off something that you don't want anymore, right? Right as he's yeah. facing the the South, the past that, that he doesn't almost want to face. Yeah, so he's got a purge, and that is not possible, maybe? Not entirely, as we see as the story comes to a conclusion. At least maybe not for him. And then it kind of comes to a head where he enters into the room, and we have the quote, The dark room which he faced repeated his voice with hollow profundity. And I think if we're, like we said, looking at this house as the kind of the history, the haunted past of the South, his voice being repeated shows that he sees himself in the past. He's, he is Southern by heritage, right? And he, by virtue of inheritance that we saw with that Abraham quote earlier, is inheriting a lot of the sins and the, the decisions that the South of generations past made. Yeah, and this is the last remnants or the the echoes of the South and what it meant. All right, next we need to kind of talk about some religious numerology here. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, Crypto. Uh, I think I told you to look out for it, but I'm assuming... Well, okay, one, I read this as like a PDF on my phone, uh, and two, I'm terrible at identifying the numbers throughout. I always rely on you for that. <laughs> <laughs> that, might be a, that might be a specialty of mine here. Yeah, I think it's your curse. But you'll notice that when it comes to Christianity specifically, as we talked about kind of in, I think it was chapters three and four with the fatalism and pre predestination, flesh and bone are important words that are used a lot in scripture in terms of the flesh and blood of, of Jesus Christ, of God. And so is Christmas in terms of birth day, right? right. And you'll notice... Okay, I notice that flesh is used in these these two chapters, eight and nine alone, not the whole book, just eight and nine. Flesh is used 18 times. Oof. Bone is used seven times. Christmas Oof. is used 17 times. Oof. And Jesus is used 18 times. So he, <laughs> he's smacking you in the face of like, this is my, re these, I mean, the whole book, there's a lot of references as we've talked about. But particularly these two chapters when they're talking about the blood and the flesh of Christ. Earlier in the book, you had the quote, um, or, or that section where they talked about God's growing old. And then you saw how he kind of molded, instead of, of the sovereign God, he molded it into Sutpen and, and Charles as, as the God and Jesus Christ. And then now we see them getting old and their story winding down. It's a very long payoff for that reference to finally have come around. Yeah, finally see the passage of time and this this cycle coming back to a new. Now we have a quote from Shreve. This one was really on the nose. I like this one. When he's talking to Quentin and he has the warm blood, if you will, at that point in time, he says, Jesus, are you cold? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... I, I actually chuckled out loud at that one and, and I, I got that. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. It's amazing for such a dark... Uh, tragic story that Faulkner's pretty good at throwing some humor in there once in a while. It's very subtle. Also, we got to talk about the number 40, a very important number in Scripture. It's used 146, 146 times in Scripture alone. So first of all, Crypto, do you know kind of what 40 may mean in terms of biblical terms? So in biblical terms, 40 usually symbolizes a uh, test, 
right? So we have Moses living out in the desert for 40 years, uh, freeing the slaves, leading them out of slavery. We also have Moses out in the desert for 40 days, 40 nights in Mount Sinai uh, to receive the, the new laws, uh, another test from God. Right. So definitely represents somebody being uh, pushed, right? right? Testing. Now you'll notice that in this book, University of Mississippi is 40 miles from Pins 100, and they mentioned that twice. And you'll notice that's when they were kind of writing together where they were testing each other in terms of their familial, incestual... Henry and Charles, right? Yes, Henry and Charles, sorry, were were almost being put to the test at this point in time. And you can see Faulkner using that numerology to, to bring that in. And additionally, the University of Mississippi, where they went and met each other for the first time, Charles and Henry, it was specifically stated that it was on 40 miles of land. And you'll also notice 40 years is also a generational difference. So this is Quentin solving the previous generation 40 years ago's past in the story. So he is on purpose bringing out that these are testing periods for these this next generation, right? How are, how are they going to interact and or accept each other compared to the last generation. Yeah, it did, did not turn out well for them, right? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Now you bring up the uh, Mount Sinai. Um, also, the number 10 is used here, where Quentin and Shreve were in the 10th class of the Old Miss, basically, since it was founded. 10 being like a symbol of authority, if you will, responsibility in the Bible. Yeah, so they have a responsibility here, right? So Quentin is now... So they're, has- they're, they're responsible for the... the, the the legacy, the story, the con- the continuing on. You got it, my man. Hey, you keep up this effort. I might get you uh, an A on your uh, Faulkner certificate program. Good job on that one. It's hanging. It's gonna hang right there. It's gonna hang right, right there. The last talking point that I, I there's. <laughs> hey guys, you didn't cover this, or you didn't talk about this. There, there's. It's impossible in a 20-minute format to cover everything. The last one that we're going to cover today is Clyde, which we talked about very briefly uh, in some previous sections, but I kind of was looking at some of the old videos, and I don't feel like we did a good job of kind of talking about her story and her symbology of her name in, in Greek and um, Greek Greek literature. So I thought we'd Yeah, kinda... we left her out a little bit when we did the Greek stuff. So we see her come back, and in the same ways that Wash Jones purged via catharsis, you know, a lot of those negative feelings and stuff in the tragedy. So is Clyde. But she's doing it to the Sutpen name, right? She's burning down the house and the people in a very brutal, <laughs> yeah. very brutal ending here. Let's talk about Clyde because she deserves more respect of discussion than what we've given her so far. So in um, Ovid's Metamorphosis, which have you read that? Long time ago. Yeah. If you remember. There's it's a, in a collection of stories, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Tons of them. This yeah. one's only like 20 pages. But Clyde was a water nymph who was basically shunned by Apollo, Apollo's love. She, they, they, she longed for him. He kind of turned her down, if you will. And basically, she eventually prostrated herself. I, I, that's not the right word. I can't think of the right word right now. But she resigned herself to spend nine days sitting in a spot looking at the sun. Apollo, Helios, back in the day, the sun, if you will. Okay. And she was eventually turned into a heliotrope flower, which by the modern day standards is the sunflower, right? Looking at the sun, staring, but unable to move. Oh, that's sad. So if you view it from this perspective, her racial identity, her mixed racial identity is part of her roots. She is stuck to Sutpen in terms of, and when they first brought that caravan in, weren't you kind of like, wait a minute, Sutpen has a slave daughter? This is kind of weird. 
all the way up to when Suppen and all the slaves leave, except Clyde. Clyde stays behind, maybe because of bloodline, but also because her racial roots were planted, and she's forced to stare at Suppen, her god, the whole time to protect him. She's the heliotrope of this story, which I thought was a very nice way to kind of very quickly reference Clyde and, and use that. I, like the, the name just works perfectly. It's a good one. I like it though. It's subtle also. Now to wrap that up to the other story of Agamemnon with the, um, I never know how to pronounce it, the Orstea trilogy, however you pronounce that. She plotted Agamemnon's death. Clytemenstra plotted Agamemnon's death upon his return from the war. Well, what happens here? Agamemnon, a.k.a. Suppin, has left for the war, and Clyde is the mechanism for which she destroys Suppin in this story, in the same way that Clytemenstra destroyed Agamemnon upon his return, where she burns down his house. The whole point of Suppin's design was to create this familial dynasty that isn't shunned from homes, that is able to lord over others, that doesn't work hard, that has the cream of the crop life. She kills Henry. And she kills herself. She kills literally the last of his design. His design is completely gone after Clyde does this, this house fire at the end. And the only living Suppin, which they call out in the story, is Jim Bond, who is of mixed racial identity, thus destroying Suppin's design. And he kind of wails and cries uh, in a similar fashion to we're going to be starting the Sound and the Fury you'll see kind of a, a similar tragic event where there's a character kind of wailing and crying in the distance. It's, you see him use that effect in both of these stories. But but you see Clytemenstra work both from the Metamorphous perspective as well as from the, the Agamemnon story perspective too. That is, it's quite brilliant what what he was able, how he picked this name. It's incredible. Yeah, I would, I would have never gotten all of that ahead. Again, I've been reading this by myself. Uh, I wouldn't have picked up on a lot of those things because they're very subtle. And again, you're focusing so much of the story on Quentin and Sutpen and Compson and, you know, a few of the other main characters where she really is uh, a driving force behind uh, the story more than just a mechanism. Oh, well, and I'm not even done. We got one more to talk about. So we talked, yeah. again, I feel like, unjustly very briefly about her being Cerberus to Suppin's private hell. Do you notice that when the ambulance came, you had the driver and the the uh, deputy trying to pull her away? Yeah, yeah. There's a quote that I think is a slight callback to the Cerberus line. The three faces, because the Cerberus has three heads, right? Yep. All a little wild now, since they must have believed her. And this is as she's setting fire to the house and setting catharsis to burn things out to send them to hell, where she is therefore the protector of keeping things from getting out from hell is Cerberus's role. All three Greek stories kind of just wrapped up there real quick, um, which is very easy to, to overlook. Faulkner's a genius. What can I say? Yeah. You also look at maybe as the flames purging the last sins of Sutpen. So let's wrap this up. We are at the tail end of this journey. It has been rough, it has been emotional, it has been challenging, and it has been incredibly rewarding. I hope this is a first-time read for you. It's really hard to unlock a lot of this in just one or even two readings. This is my third time reading. What's been your experience so far, Crypto? Very overwhelming positive. Uh, I think that, like many, I have struggled with parts of it, but I think due to uh, help and talking things through, which I highly encourage people to do, is go through this journey with somebody and you're going to enjoy it that much more and then give yourself a break 
and then try the journey again. I think that it's worth it. And that's what I plan on doing. So this was my third time through and I unlocked a ton of stuff. I think because we plan to break it down as opposed to just reading it for fun. And it got extremely frustrating for me the first read through for this. This has been a lot more rewarding doing this type of a breakdown with it. This is a text that is, it's tragic. It's meant to make you feel grief. It's meant to make you feel angry and sad. And it's meant to purge that out at the end, as we kind of talked about in chapter seven. There's incredibly deep Greek references. Probably there's there's tons more play references that we either A, didn't see or understand, or B, didn't have time to get into. And there's tons yeah. of religious representation here too, in terms of uh, God choosing the sparrow, in terms of the fatalism and the predestination. This this is just such an incredible text. It's hard for, it's impossible for one person to be able to really be able to encapsulate everything. Uh, I feel like working on this with you has been very rewarding and helped me bring out more than I probably could have done by myself too. So this is a very important text. You may have been frustrated by it. That Think about that though, that this book was probably maybe able to make you feel things that maybe other books haven't or couldn't. This is an incredibly important story where this isn't just something that's made up this is an incredible allegory for what the southern United States went through and why the South and America as a whole is a very racist country and where that came from. It's important for us to realize that we're a country that's big enough to accept that we made mistakes and figure out how to move forward with that. So while this book maybe wasn't your favorite reading it, maybe at least acknowledge how important this text is in American literature canon and, and how a lot of people ought to study this if they aren't already. Yeah, I think that was beautifully put. I would just follow up and say that if we were limited to a number of books to put on a spaceship because Earth was going to be destroyed, I would put this book on that ship to ensure that we had a legacy of mistakes from our past to learn from them and move forward to become better people. So with that, guys, thank you so much for joining us on our Absalom Absalom in-depth program. Please check out the links down below for our William Faulkner certificate program. This will be an important text on that test for you to get a William Faulkner certificate printout. Uh, please make sure you check out the other books that are in short stories that are going to be listed in that. And we hope that you join us on the journey because this has been a lot of fun and very rewarding for us from a literature perspective. Una out. Peace.